Hey, good morning, everybody. So good to be with you this morning. Uh, I wanted to, before we get into the text this morning, just give you a little idea of what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, uh, both today and next week, starting with next week. Uh, I will be taking about 47 people from this church to Israel for a bit of a Bible tour. Super exciting. Uh, but I'll only be missing one Sunday. Um, I don't like missing Sundays. I like Sundays with you. And so uh, for that particular Sunday, it's going to be September 8th. What we wanted to do, I was thinking through this. It's like, do I get like a guest speaker or someone to stand in? Uh, but then I thought, how, how fun would it be if we were to stream something from Israel, something we did, a, a teaching, many teachings over there, one of those two here, just to kind of uh, bring the rest of the congregation into what God is doing just to participate in that. So what's going to happen on September 8th is we're going to try to feed a sermon from Israel that we're doing over there over to here so that you can just be a part uh, of what's happening over there. I'm not going to tell you what it's going to be, but I will tell you that uh, next Sunday will be a scene from Galilee. So Old Testament book, scene from Galilee, just to give you a taste to whet your appetite uh, to invite you into the world that is the land uh, of Jesus. So stay tuned for that. Uh, if you want to know exactly what we'll be talking about and what scene that is in the Old Testament, just going to have to come. But I will tell you this, you will not be sad, okay? As for today, uh, we've been going through a, a lot of different books, went through the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, took us six months more recently, we went through the book of Ruth. That took us about a month. Now we just wanted to pause for a moment because this week, actually the first week of September, is uh, our four-year anniversary as a church. That's fun. <clears throat> so what I wanted to do is just pause a little bit from, uh, from the daily grind, for the, from the weekly grind, uh, just for a moment to... Uh, to look back on what God has done and what God is going to do in anticipation. Uh, and so, if you will, with your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 3 through 13. What I want to show you in this picture uh, of Samuel is a battle scene in Scripture where I believe will emerge three points that are especially relevant. To where we are as a church and where God may be taking us. First Samuel chapter seven, verse three through thirteen. I'm just going to read it from the top, from verse 3, all 10 verses, and then we'll pray, and then we'll study the Word of God. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3 through 13, and this is the Word of the Lord. It says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods, and the Ashtoreth among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. 
And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Let's stop there. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that with uh, your word open, that you would now enlighten our hearts to receive the bread of life, which is your word. We pray, and I pray specifically, God, for myself as I preach and teach, that you would enlarge my heart and loosen my lips to magnify the glory of the living God in this place. We pray that out of this, you would come away more glorious looking, more famous, more alluring, better than, greater than, more ultimate than anything else that we came into this building with. We pray that you would cast down all other things that we have set up against the knowledge of the Holy One. We pray, God, for instead, the things that we pile on to our lives to try to satisfy our longing for security, our longing for relationship, our longing for joy, our longing for satisfaction and happiness, those things that we we accumulate to try to satisfy, we pray that you would replace them with a, a taste of the holy, a taste of your glory. And I pray that as we study, as I, I pray that as we open up your word and we endeavor to understand what you have said, that the Holy Spirit would give us a sense of your holiness and a taste of your presence. And as the psalmist declares, may your presence be our good. May your nearness be what strengthens us. We pray together. And we confess together. Even though our flesh and our heart may fail, you are our strength and our portion forever. We believe this and we trust in it in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's sermon is Then and Now with God and God's People. Then and Now. What it looks like. And and here's what I want to do. You know, it's our four year anniversary as a church. Started four years ago on September. I believe it was a, well, it was the first week of September. Been together doing this, gathering together for four years. But this is not so much a sermon about look at what we have done over the past four years. But rather, and if I may, look at how God has been so faithful to his people, to the fame and glory of his name, in spite of our faithlessness at times, our, our silliness, our recklessness even. Look at how faithful God has been. I hope that comes out of this text for you, as I, I, I believe it does. And specifically, I want to hone in on three things, okay, as we go through 1 Samuel chapter 7. I want to specifically speak about, you know, where we've been as a church, where, we're, uh, where I believe God is taking us as a church, as we've been going through the words of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and Ruth and all of these great things about what it means to follow God. What I believe comes out of this text is three things at least. One, what does it mean to follow God? Two, why is it difficult to follow God? And three, what will help us? to follow God, even though it's difficult. I think those three things come out of this text. You can see for yourself as the good Bereans that you are. Amen? Uh, What does it mean to follow God? And I want to hone in on verses three through six, right? And give you a little background. If you were to just rewind just a little bit beyond the pages of 1 Samuel chapter seven, you will see drama that is fit for HBO, man. You will see things, I mean, you could rewind as far as you you can. Go all the way back to Judges, right? We just spent time in Ruth, right before Ruth is Judges, which is a horrific narrative of what it looks like when a a, a group of people uh, push away from God, when they choose not to follow him. A society chooses not to follow God or his kingdom, this, the picture that we see emerge from judges, everything from sexual assault to 
to racial prejudice, to violence, to just overall depravity is the case in point. This is what it looks like when people reject God. If you fast forward to the immediate context of 1 Samuel, you'll see a little bit more of the same. You see a corrupt priesthood with Eli, who has not raised his sons uh, to follow God. They are corrupt in themselves. He is disobeying the voice of the Lord, and he himself is the mouthpiece to Israel. So out of the mouthpiece flows uh, uh, all of the things that Israel is now following. And so out of Eli's life, out of his family's life, Israel is kind of following suit and they're turning away from the Lord. And we see in the immediate context, as we just read, false gods and Ashtaroths, which we'll speak about later, uh, following after false gods. All of this stuff is going on in this immediate context. Israel is not following the Lord. They're choosing to reject him and take up anything else that they can. And in the middle of this, verses 3, verses 4, 5, 6, is a clear call from God through the mouthpiece, the prophet Samuel, to the people of Israel and to our church today. A clear call to switch paths. You are on this path, I'm calling you to switch paths. And he says this through a few lines. I want to look at specifically verse 3. There's a call here. Return to the Lord with your whole heart, with all of your heart. This might be a little bit confusing because whenever we speak about the word heart, we, at least in modern language, often think of heart, rightly so, as that which is passionate, right? We might think of the emotions. If, if we were to say of someone they did it with, with, uh, with so much heart, they, we, mean, uh, we might mean passion or zeal in that moment. We might be referring to a person's emotional capacities. If that person has a lot of heart, they might be just really into something. And those things are all covered by the biblical description of the heart, but it's also more so. It's more than that. It's a comprehensive word. So it includes emotions. It includes what we might call fits of passion, where you just wake up, you're, you're uh, zealous about something, and you just do it until it gets done. Fits of passion. But the word uh, in the ancient Hebrew understanding for heart also includes so much more. It includes the emotions, but it also includes the willpower. It includes that which is not just a fit of passion, that which you do in a, in a moment of passion, right? But it also includes those things that you do after a lot of deep, concentrated thought. It includes the willpower, that which uh, Dallas Willard would once, uh, once call the heart being the executive center of the human person. We might say from a Hebrew understanding, the heart, when they refer to the heart, is the deepest part of who you are. It's where all your decisions come from. It's where your deepest motivations come from. Everything from your deepest fears and insecurity, all of those things down in the heart. What is Samuel saying? What is God saying through Samuel? But I want the deepest part of who you are. And he begins to qualify this, lest we think something that that isn't. He begins to give us qualifiers about what it means to give everything about us to the Lord by saying, I want you to put away foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. We'll talk about Ashtaroth in a few seconds. But when he says this, super important, when he says, I want the deepest part of who you are, I want your whole heart, he qualifies that by saying, I do not want you to chase after other things. In other words, I want all of you and I'm not going to share. Right? It's like my, my three-year-old daughter, Abby. Mine! Right? This is God too. Mine! If you're going to cross over and follow the Almighty God, you have to recognize his call to the deepest part of who you are. You're mine. It's a holy, jealous love over those people whom he deeply loves. And this involves, in some way, being completely, in a full way, being completely faithful, loyal, single-minded, undivided, to him, And so he says, what it means to chase after me with your whole heart is to give up all your foreign gods, break off trust in all of these false gods. And he goes on to say, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So this is kind of the same thought, right? You can't chase after foreign gods, you must serve me and me alone. This is what it means to pursue me and to return to me with all of your heart. This is poignant, incredibly needed for us today, not just Samuel not just the people of Israel, because of our proclivity. You could probably trace this throughout history, certainly in the days of Israel, and certainly today, our proclivity to syncretism, right? 
It's that word that we would use to describe trying to fit two opposing things into one bubble, right? Two things that don't go together, I want both of them together. And when you apply this to spirituality, you might say, I want God and all of this other stuff. Now, I'm not saying to follow God means you can't have stuff or do other things. What I'm saying is, where your ultimate hope and security lies has to be founded in one object. And this is what God is getting at. Our biggest danger, or one of our biggest dangers, is not so much that we say, I hate God and I choose other things instead. But it's rather, I love God, but I need a little extra help, right? It's not that we say when we move to Santa Barbara, I hate God and I love wealth. It's, I love God, but it would be nice to have a nice house and a career and some extra padding, you know, for my sense of security. God is great for my religion, but money is great for my security. I love God, but relationships. I love God, but my resume. I love God, but, you know, people liking me. I love God, but this and that and the other. And we add, we do a little bit of our own math. It's like a syncretism type of math. God plus this other stuff. God becomes a supplement to really all of these other things that we use to either medicate ourselves or give us a sense of power, security, belonging. God is there, but he's kind of in the periphery. God says, syncretism is impossible with me. Jesus would go on to echo this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, saying, No one can serve two masters. Syncretism, impossible. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In that case, he's using a specific example. He's not saying to follow God, you can't have money. He's saying to follow God, you can't serve money. Or fill in the blanks, anything else. God, when he was saying this to the Israelites, I want you to kind of step into the shoes because this is going to mean a lot for you and I. What he was saying to them was he was requiring, he was actually requiring quite a lot of the Israelites. This was not kind of a, a Western version of Christianity where we can just follow God and everything else. He was actually requiring a deep cost on their behalf. When he, when he throws in, he lumps in with foreign gods, that Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth is a type of god is a, uh, that was worshipped over a wide area. It was basically a god of fertility, love, and war. It was a, a, a to put it bluntly, worship of the Ashtaroth often involved uh, sexual relations with temple prostitutes. This was a, a, a normal, common cult thing. You can read the book of Corinthians to see this actually uh, bleeding into the to the early church, but this was a common thing. Now imagine God's calling on the Israelites who were getting sucked into that and the cost that this would, in, would have entailed. I love how Dalph, uh, Dale, Ralph, Dalph, Dale Ralph Davis, uh, Old Testament scholar, in his typical scholarly dry humor, he puts it this way as he speaks about the cost. He says, Canaanite religion exerted a powerful appeal with the sexual rites that were part of its worship. Most, not must, most fun-loving Canaanites doubtless found the combination of liturgy and orgy highly congenial, not to speak of the convenience of having chapel and brothel at one location. It was no easy task to peel Israelites out of the grip of a cult that both asked for and approved of the offering of their glands as a living sacrifice to Baal and Asherah, which was their reasonable service. Little satire on Romans chapter 12 if they wanted their crops to grow. In other words, the, what was going on there was you sleep with a temple prostitute, call it worship to this false god, and your crops will grow. Well, who in that age wouldn't uh, look at that with some type of appeal? Dale Ralph Davis goes on to say, one might just as well try to relieve poison ivy by scratching than telling them to stop it or to knock it off. But God does say, hey, knock it off. You either get me or you get none of me. This is tantamount to when a, a young guy gets married or is on the verge of getting married and is wondering about what he's going to do with all of his stuff, right? 
any of you young guys who are uh, about to get married or engaged, you got a lot of stuff that you inherited from your college days, right? And you might have in your mind that she really wants that papazon chair that you've been hoarding for years upon years, but she probably doesn't want it. I know this because I had a papazon chair. It was a great Papazon chair. I also had this Audubon. I had this crazy awesome divider with like calligraphy on it. I had so many things that were incredible. I had a futon. <laughs> and when I got married six years ago to Brianna, I was like, I want all my stuff. She's all, you are not bringing that dirty Papazon chair into my house. I said, well, what about my futon? No married couple has a futon. That's a college thing. This is all bachelor pad stuff. You want to move into my house, you got to get rid of your stuff. And this is exactly what happened. She let, me, she let me move in, but all of my stuff I had to get rid of. She wanted the whole house to move her stuff in. And I'm, I'm glad in retrospect because it looks a, a lot nicer than my house did when I was in school. But God wants the whole house. He doesn't want you to bring your stuff from a past life. He wants to start from scratch. And he is right now rearranging the furniture in your heart and in your life to make room for his holy presence. But it's going to entail that you get rid of a few things that you're clinging to. Perhaps you're in the middle of that right now. It's a bit of a spiritual cleansing. And this is something that happens Happens in the life of the church, happened to Jacob, happened with Joshua, is happening with Samuel, is happening right now with the church. Are we heeding that spiritual cleansing? This is, there's another word for that, we simply call it repentance. Repentance is one of those words that when we hear it, we might cringe a little bit because we think of God pulling us away from so many things that we like. Now it might, it might be that. But there's a deeper thing going on. Re- repentance is not just apologizing or saying you're sorry. And it's not just God ruining people's fun because he gets kicks from it. It is repentance literally means to turn in the opposite direction from a different direction or a said thing. Repenting of something is to turn away from that said thing. Now, We might think that God is calling us to repent from a lot of good things, but from God's perspective, what we see in his written word is that all of the things, we we call it sin, anytime that we miss the mark, anytime that we do something that he tells us not to, he is calling us to turn away from something that is robbing him of glory and robbing us of eternal joy. So repentance then turns to be a very good thing. And a very alluring thing, if we could just see it in that fashion. Jesus would come uh, come on the scene in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 and say, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, you are going in the opposite direction of the best thing that you've ever heard of. I want you to turn away from that direction. Turn towards the kingdom of God. Repent of that lifestyle, of that way of thinking that is tearing you away from me. Turn towards the kingdom by responding to me in faith. Following God then, first of all, we could put it this way, means to repent, which is not saying you're sorry, it's not apologizing, it is to turn away from what you were following, putting an end to an old way of living and deciding to follow God instead. And the Christian life, it certainly starts with an attitude and a posture of repentance, but it continues Don't think for a moment that repentance happens when you were born again and from that point on you're good. Our lives should be like a spiritual workout in which we are constantly asking, like King David in the Psalms, Holy Spirit, to the Spirit of God, uh, uh, search me and examine me and see if there's any, uh, any, wayward way in, uh, any wayward way within me and lead me in the path of everlasting life. Constant repentance. It is, if I could rephrase it, a way of realigning, constantly realigning our hearts and our souls to the kingdom of God. We're looking, allowing him to search areas in our lives that do not, uh, do not model or mirror or mimic the kingdom of God and saying, I'm done with that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Turning into a different direction. I'm turning towards God. This brings up the second point though. For any of you that have tried to follow God in any type of you know, authentic or sincere way, you easily, at least at some point, and if you haven't already, you will, find that it's incredibly difficult. 
for a variety of reasons. To follow God, to take him seriously, everything that he says, to, as Matthew tells us, to observe all that the Lord has taught us is and can be very difficult. And I just want to give you a, a vignette of this starting in verse 7 through 11. I won't read it again, but you, you got the gist of it. They, they move to Mizpah. And they begin to pray. Samuel begins to pray and offers a sacrifice for Israel. This creates a problem, right? Mizpah is this area just off north of Jerusalem that is higher up than any other area. It has commanding views of the valleys to the west. You can see everything. In this way, it was a rallying point in Judges chapter 20. And later, we see in 2 Kings, it actually becomes, after the fall of Jerusalem, becomes the capital. So Mizpah is actually very strategic in its placement. As the people of Israel travel to this top high point and they begin to pray and seek out the Lord, the Philistines see Israel gathering in a very strategic place. And for them, there were some ramifications. The Philistines, who recently defeated the Israelites, don't see in their posture a sense of repentance, but revolt. And maybe the two aren't so different. Every time you repent of your sin. You are revolting against the schemes of the enemy. Every time you repent and you say, I choose Christ, you are stiff-arming the kingdom of this world, the spiritual kingdoms of this world. Every time you choose God over your own flesh, you are revolting against the flesh. This is a posture of revolt against a falling, failing kingdom. And what the Philistines see in Israel is a posture of revolt. They immediately go to attack and pursue. Have you ever chosen consciously, to, you've, you've chosen to follow after God, you've made that conscious effort, perhaps you've been wanting to battle sin in your life, perhaps you've been wanting to uh, heed or obey a specific calling in your life that was radical, you immediately encounter spiritual oppression. Or maybe it's not necessarily spiritual oppression. Maybe it's your flesh, your sinful nature creeping up and just having a heyday. Maybe you've been at your weakest point in those moments where God has visited you the most. Whatever it is, perhaps some of you could say, yeah, it's when, I, it's, it's when I've had deepest times with the Lord or when I've really wanted to press in that I've encountered the deepest spiritual battle. Isn't that the truth? It's as if Satan and his demons sense in you a call to press into the Lord. They see in you a sense of revolt and they begin to attack. Notice the response of the Israelites. Verse eight, they say to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. Don't stop crying to the Lord for our help. Don't stop crying to the Lord for our help. I want you to notice, you know, it's, see all the bulletins and fans just going wild right now. Satan is already oppressing right now, just with heat. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> try, to, try to keep this one quick, okay? But for the moment that we're in here, press in with me. I believe God wants to speak. This passage, I think, is intentionally trying to, t- <laughs> this passage is inten- intentionally trying to tell us something in a particular way. If you were to rewind to chapter four, you're gonna see a particular battle scene that is almost identical to the one we're in in chapter seven. It's a parallel. It's meant, the author's intent is meant to speak to us in a particular way. In chapter four, there was a battle scene where uh, Israel just going berserk, not listening to the Lord, is going to attack uh, the Philistines They're not listening to God. God did not tell them to do that. Instead of listening to the voice of God through the prophet Samuel, they take the ark of God. They've heard a few things. They've seen a few things. They're like, the ark, this is incredible. It's like magic. People touch it and they die. This is incredible. We're gonna take the ark into battle and it's gonna win everything for us. They get slaughtered by the Philistines. God says, you can't just take my furniture and expect that I'm gonna fight your battles. It's not my furniture. It's me. It's my presence. Philistines take the ark and they're like, wow, we got the ark of the living God. Well, God's like, hey, you ain't special either. Bam, strikes them. Everybody is just hiding under rocks at the presence of the living God. 
And in that passage, we see an exact parallel to what we see in chapter 7. In chapter 4, Israel is struck down by the Philistines. In chapter 7, the Philistines are struck down by the Israelites. In chapter 4, the the Israelites say, hey, if we just take this ark, it will save us. In chapter 7, they say, let God deliver and save us. In chapter 4, as a result of all of this, the place is called Ichabod. In chapter 7, a tower of rocks is is erected and is called Ebenezer. Ichabod meaning where is, literally where is glory or where is God's glory. Uh, Ebenezer meaning the stone of God's help. I believe the author is scrunching these two stories together to show us the difference in the way that Israel was relating to their God. In the first battle, they're essentially saying, hey, we can manipulate God. There might have even been a subtlety to this. You know, we've gotten, perhaps Israel was saying, you know, we've been walking with God for so many seasons, four years maybe, We've gotten used to it. There was a, a time and a period where this was all fresh and new and we were desperate. But now we kind of know some theology. We know some stuff. We've got some friends in the community. We go to church, whatnot. We've, been some, we've seen some battles. We, we know kind of how this works. We don't need to pray anymore. There was a loss of desperation and a manipulation that replaced it. We'll just take the ark. We've seen it, we've seen it done a, a bunch of times. We could do this. They get throttled, and what we see in chapter 7 is we were wrong about everything. No matter how many years come by and go, we, we, we are just as desperate as when we started, and God is still as redemptive as when he started. And we still need the power and the presence of the living God. Lest we get comfortable with ourselves and think that everything is fine, let reality Santa Barbara recognize this day that we are still desperate as ever for the presence of the Almighty God to show himself mighty on our behalf. Lest we get used to the sounds and to the music and to the preaching and to the gathering and to the summer festivities and to all of the things that happen among us. Let us stop this day and recognize we are more helpless than ever and should the presence of God disappear for a moment, we will cease to have any hope or security. And isn't that the truth with us? I love gathering with, uh, with you guys. I love worshiping. I actually love teaching. I love that you let me jabber jaw for 40 minutes. I love our kids' ministry. I love our summer gatherings. I love our home groups. I love our little parties. I love all of this stuff. But without the presence of God, this is worthless. Can't you find better entertainment on a Sunday morning than this? If that's all that this amounts to, can't you find something better? No, we gather around the presence of God. That's all we have going for us, ladies and gentlemen. So let us continue to cry out, God, show yourself mighty on behalf of your people. This is what Samuel and the Israelites did. This is, I hope, what we will continue to do as a four-year-old toddler. I don't know if four-year-olds still toddle. But you might look at this and you say, yeah, I see that. There's a call for reality, Santa Barbara, to come back to a desperate trust in God. I see that. But perhaps you're saying, the truth is, as you've been saying, following God is very difficult. And I don't understand the incentive of following God when things are difficult. I understood when, you know, I turned on the, two, the, the television and that guy in the three-piece suit was telling me that if I followed Christ, everything would just be awesome and that my suffering would disappear and I, w- I would be happy for the rest of my life and rich. But I've been following Christ for two years and it, my life has actually been harder than it's ever been. What incentive do I have to keep going? Now I can resonate with this at least to some degree. I turned on my phone the other day and was going through Instagram looking at my own feed and noticing that I only post pictures of my kids when they are glorious. And I also noticed that about your posts, too. You only post pictures of sunsets, not the rain, or the drought. You only post pictures of, like, the finest beverages. 
You only post pictures of like clean homes. We never post pictures of messy homes. We never post selfies when we wake up out of bed, you know. We never post pictures of like the times in our life when we're suffering. It's only the highlight reel. When I look at your Instagram feed, I look at your best life as it is. The highlight feed. Isn't this how we operate? Kind of funny. It's the image that I choose to project to you. This is what it looks like to have a family. They're always smiling and sleeping when you want and they leave you alone and they give you space and they, they serve you and they do the dishes and they're great. You know what I want to do, which I probably will not do, is for like a month just post all the damaging photos. The screaming and the walking outside in the middle of the day in my pajamas with a garbage bag of dirty diapers on my shoulder, kids screaming at me, dishes piled up to the rooftops, messes everywhere, spit, snail trails just on my shirt. Just the humiliation of it all. Perhaps you don't have kids and you're like, why do you do that? I'll tell you why. It's for that moment that my one-year-old son, Jude, wakes up from his nap, sees me, his eyes burst open, size of dinner plates. He runs into my lap, crawls up into my chest, and bites me on the nose. <laughs> it's for those moments when I come home from work and Abby greets me at the door and says, Hi, Daddy, you want to play with toys? those times when my kids tell me that they love me for the first time, grab me, kiss me, hug me, crying at night because of the monsters and want their daddy to snuggle with them, to pray with them, to cuddle with them. I'll go through all the diapers on earth for those little moments. I'll go through all the Instagram pictures of the deepest turmoil for those little moments, those fleeting moments of pure bliss. They're not fleeting. They are plentiful. The truth of the matter is the rewards far outweigh the trials. And that's what it's like to follow God. The truth is, why follow God when there is no highlight reel at some moments? It's because the rewards of following God far outweigh the trials. And there will be trials in your life. But the rewards, if you stick with it, far outweigh the trials. Samuel stands between God and man. He intercedes, crying out to the Lord in verse 9, and the Lord answers. And then he offers a sacrifice, a lamb, offers it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the response is not just their reward, but ours. We have a God who hears, verse 8. We have a God who saves, verse 10. A God who hears what you're going through, cares about what you're going through, is not ignorant to what you're going through, and as if that wasn't enough, an all-powerful God who listens to what you're going through also has the, the, uh, the courage and the audacity to step into the problems of your life and walk through them with you. God, the royal king of the universe, And in this scene, God defeats the enemy. I love how he defeats them. The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. They were defeated before Israel. This leaves so much to the imagination, right? It doesn't say anything except that. It doesn't even say he said anything. It just says God thundered with a very loud sound. And they were defeated. In other words, God's presence... For the enemy brought confusion. But God's presence for God's people always brings clarity and peace and tremendous strength. Perhaps that's what you need this morning. What we see in Samuel about the risk and reward of following God, we see most vividly in a different person. It was actually Hebrews that tells us upon opening that God speaks through the prophets like Samuel, but in these last days, he speaks most vividly and most fully through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one. Really, Samuel is a picture, a vignette of a greater person. In Christ, we see Samuel, a better Samuel, who stands like an umpire between God and men and women. He also intercedes, but better. 
Hebrews tells us that he is able to save those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession between God and man. He's also the one who sacrifices. But unlike Samuel, who had to offer a sacrifice for himself, Hebrews 7.27 says, Jesus has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins, then for those of the people, uh, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself by dying on the cross. And Christ, by doing so, doesn't just defeat the Philistines. He doesn't just defeat the Moabites. He, doesn't, he defeats our enemies, but not the enemies that we see in the Old Testament. He doesn't defeat old, uh, uh, geographic enemies or ethnic enemies. We have no enemies other than those that are spiritual, as Paul would say in Ephesians. Our enemy, those that we battle against, we do not battle against with flesh and blood. We battle against principalities and powers and rulers of this darkness. Satan and his demons, that's the real enemy. And Christ, who has called us into battle, riding shotgun with him, has also given us a memo. Oh, by the way, I have already won the battle. You simply get to walk in the victory. Pursue it with me. Colossians chapter two, I love this. He did this. He, he, beat the, he defeated uh, the enemy. He won the battle by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our mistakes, everything that we have done wrong, everything that we have done to mar his glory, to steal from his glory, he took it and he nailed it to the cross. Think through your sinful resume, all the things that you are ashamed of right now. When you come to Christ by faith, he takes all of that stuff, he nails it to the cross where it stays and you move forward. By doing so, he disarms demons, Satan, rulers and authorities. He puts them to open shame by triumphing over them. In Christ, the people of God are loved. They are supported. They are also more than conquerors through him who loved them. In Christ, nothing is lacking, nothing is insecure, nothing is lost. And you might know that intellectually, on an intellectual level. I know that's true for a fact. I read it in the Bible. I'm okay with that. But maybe experientially, what you're saying is this. I know that's true, Chris, but I am in the middle of the worst battle of my life. And I believe that Christ is there, but I don't believe, I don't feel that nothing is lacking. I don't feel that things are secure. What I feel is insecurity. What I feel is fear. What I feel is confusion. Friend, if that's you, you need, to, you need to read the next verse. We need to read the next verse as a church. Verse 12, then Samuel took a stone, lest he forget, and set up between Mizpah and Shen this stone, calling it the name Ebenezer, which literally means the stone of help. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And he's speaking not spatially or geographically, but uh, in a, a temporal sense. He's speaking about as far as God has been in action till this point, he has always been helping. We can, we can believe that Samuel was referring all the way back to Abraham. Everything that God has ever done since the days of Abraham till now, he has done well and he has been faithful and he has been helping us all along. He sets up an Ebenezer, calls it the stone of help. Some of you have been conditioned since childhood to believe God helps those who help themselves. Forgot uh, where this was from, but there was a study done. Uh, t- it was like the top 10 verses that people believe are in the Bible. And it showed that the vast majority of a certain group of people actually believe that this was a, a passage in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. I think it has its origins with Ben Franklin, who was wrong. God does not help people who are able to help themselves. He may eventually enable them to do certain things, but he does not. Where do you find that in all of the Bible? The Beatitudes start in this way. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Paul said, by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own works, for it is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps people who cannot help themselves. That's the gospel. Are you desperate enough? Are you broken? 
Have you run out of room? Do you not know where to go from here? Perfect. You're in a great situation right now to turn your eyes to the stone of your help. God helps people who cannot help themselves. And this is what will get you through the day when you're asking, well, uh, how can God be helping me when the Philistines are, are beating me to a pulp? Whatever Philistines looks like for you and your, your uh, particular situation, well, how is God helping me? I'll tell you what an Ebenezer will do for you. It'll remind you that you are not alone. It'll remind you that even the, the, the scum that's in your life, the difficulties are somehow going to turn around. It doesn't necessarily mean that God is going to pull you out of your suffering or pull you out of the fire. It does mean that he's gonna take you through it, closer to him, more strengthened in him, more full of joy and peace and security than you've ever knew before that suffering. But it's the Ebenezer that's gonna get you through that. If someone were to accuse my wife of something horrific to me, I would immediately be skeptical. I would immediately doubt it. Not because I know or have any clue about what she's doing in that present or in the future, but because I know her already. And when I say that I know my wife, Brianna, I'm speaking about thousands of particular decisions and actions that she has done before that point. I know Brianna because I know her from the past. Everything that I know about her, I know about her having done certain things over and over, out, uh, spilling out of her character as a person. I know Brianna because I know what she has done before. And I can trust that she's going to do certain things or not do certain things. I just trust her because she's proven herself to be a trustworthy, incredible, powerful, strong, wise, loving, compassionate woman. Not because I can see into the future, but because I know her past. Brothers and sisters, God's past is far more extensive than any person you will ever know. And unlike me, and unlike my wife, and unlike any of you who are, whose pasts are riddled with mistakes, God makes no mistakes. And God's past reputation is your future assurance. You can take that to the bank. It's in those moments when life gets tough that you better, before life gets tough, have a couple examples of God's faithfulness just ready to pull out of your pocket. Just, you know? Like a token. You need airtight, easily accessible examples of God's faithfulness to wave before your eyes when your faith falters. And in that moment, the spirit of the Holy, the, uh, the Holy Ghost, if I can call him that, will step in and begin to apply that to your heart. And he will strengthen your heart. But gosh, wave God's faithfulness before you. I'm going to skip that. And that and that and that and that. I'm just going to end with this. When God's faithfulness has been marinating in our hearts long enough, it eventually gives birth to praise. Okay? Praise is more than just remembering God's faithfulness. It is, it is now delighting in his faithfulness. It's being exuberant in his faithfulness. It's not just saying for nostalgic reasons, God did this once and upon a time. It is saying, God did this. He's so great. He's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. It's not just remembering for nostalgic reasons. It's delighting in who he is and what he's done. Praise is the foundation of God's people. Praise has to be the foundation of reality, Santa Barbara. Praise is the best defense against giving up. Because in so doing, you're getting your eyes off of your own failures, your proclivities, your sin. You're getting them onto God. The Ebenezer isn't the stone of how good you are at helping yourself. It's the stone of God's help. It's praise is forcing your eyes to fixate on God's wealth. Psalmist in Psalm 66, first three verses says, Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. It's reveling in how good he is. 
despite how bad we sometimes can be. That phrase, make his praise glorious, it, it, it isn't saying that he's somehow deficient in his glory and we're, we're adding to it. It's rather, if I could rephrase it, what the psalmist is saying is, uh, his, he is as glorious as he could possibly be, but we are charged with spreading the fame of his glory everywhere. That's what is deficient in the world. That's what must go across, uh, throughout the church, into our communities, into the city, and across the nations to unreached people groups. It is the fame of his glory. And so the psalmist says, make his praise glorious. Spread it around. Are you doing that with your kids? With your coworkers? With your peers? With your bunk mates? With your dorm mates? With your spouse? Are you praising God together? Are you stopping in the morning, in the evenings, in the middle of the day? Are you practicing praise? Are you cultivating a habit of praise? Is that the first thing that comes out of your mouth when life pushes you? When life just gives you a kidney shot, is the first thing that comes out like, God is so good, in some way or another? Not that we have to suppress those real emotions when we're suffering, but is that somewhere in your vision? God is still good. God is still faithful. If I can recap everything that I've said, if you're like, okay, I get, I get what you're saying. How do, I, how do I enter into that? You can turn this sermon into a prayer in, in this way. If I could rephrase it this way, you can say, and I'm just gonna ask Aaron to come up and the worship team to come up as we transition. You can say, Jesus, I can see that you are truly the greatest and the sweetest and the most alluring, and the most ultimate, and I've, I've, I've looked at you closely, and I've decided I want to follow you. But the truth is, it's, it's hard, and I'm, I'm really struggling. And so Christ, I, I just, in the method of Samuel, I just want to get my eyes off of me, and I want to get them on you, and so I'm going to hoist you up as the, as the hero of my story, and I'm going to do that by praising you. Despite what's going on in my life, I choose consciously to praise you, to lift you up, to make much of who you are and what you've done. Brothers and sisters, as you make that your habit, as you start, start right now as we sing. As you make that the habit of your life, you're going to notice something. It might not be that you get instantly healed or that suffering just dissipates or life just gets breezy all of a sudden. It might get harder But here's what you're going to notice. As you lift up the name of Jesus Christ in your life, you will sense his presence with you. And that is more for you than anything that wealth can ever offer, anything that relationships can ever offer, anything that security in this life can ever offer, anything that culture is is advertising to you can ever offer. The presence and the nearness of God. The psalmist said his nearness is our good and in his presence is fullness of joy. What can you praise him for today? Maybe you're one of the rare types which say there's literally nothing that I can think of. Well, then look to the cross. Say, thank you, God, for that. Thank you, though though my life was falling apart and I stiff-armed you and walked the other way, you still pursued me. What many of you need today is for the Lord to thunder over you with a mighty sound. Lift him up in praise. Let his nearness be your strength and allow his voice to thunder. He'll never deny you that. Heavenly Father, we invite you here today. We know that you're already here. We just ask that by your spirit you would make us aware of your presence. Visit us today as we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen.